All right, greetings to all of our campuses. We are glad that all of you are here this weekend. Um, For a number of weeks now, we've been talking about the issue of faith, how we can grow in our faith. And so we've spent some time looking in in Luke chapter 24 at a number of things that can help our faith grow, things like uh, engagement in the Bible and and hearing the testimonies of God's activity in people's lives and, and seeing the evidence of miracles, all of which can help our faith grow. But anytime the topic of faith is discussed, there was always lurking in the background another very painful or powerful, I should say, a very powerful reality. Doubt. You know, the the reality of doubt. Very rarely as Christians do we talk about doubt, our doubts, even though we all struggle with doubt at times. I mean, let's just get it right out in the open, right here. We all have doubts. Maybe a friend or a loved one dies, or we experience profound disappointment, or maybe we're asked a theological question that we can't answer, and suddenly we start having doubts about our faith. I'm a pastor, and I at times have doubts about God. In the midst of a a, a tragedy where I'm ministering to a family or maybe in in looking at a particularly difficult passage of scripture, I I sometimes begin to wonder if this stuff is real. You know, we all have questions like that. We all have doubts. In fact, there's this fascinating passage at the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has appeared to the disciples. He tells them to go to Galilee to a particular mountain, and they do, and he again shows up. He appears to them. Now look at this next verse, verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Are you kidding me? <laughs> he was right there before their eyes, their risen Savior, with you know scars in his hand and hands and feet, and yet some doubted, which in a weird way is sort of comforting to me, right? It, it's normal to experience doubt. The key issue is what do we do with our doubts? This is such an important topic that we're actually going to spend two weeks looking at it from two different perspectives. I'm going to share my thoughts this week, and then KJ is going to share his thoughts about doubt next week. Now, our basic thesis is that doubts can either derail our faith or strengthen our faith. It's normal to have doubts, but they can either derail our faith or strengthen our faith. Again, the key issue is what do we do with our doubts? How do we, how do we deal with our doubts? In a a recent biography about Steve Jobs, the founder of of Apple, um, the biographer described a defining moment that occurred when when Jobs was 13 years old. He had just seen a magazine cover with two starving children in Africa, and he was extremely troubled by this magazine cover. And so that Sunday, he took took the magazine with him to, to the Lutheran church that his family attended, and he went up to the pastor, and he asked, if I raise my finger, will God know which finger I'm going to raise even before I do that? And the pastor said, yes, God knows everything. And then Jobs showed the pastor the magazine cover, and he asked, does God know about this and what's going to happen to those children? And in response, the pastor said, Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. Well, Jobs decided that day that he wanted nothing to do with the God like that, and he never, ever went back to church. Oprah 
tells about a time when she was sitting in a church service one day. She heard the pastor talk about God being a jealous God. And she didn't understand how God could be jealous. She didn't understand that at all. So she decided at that moment she wanted nothing to do with a God like that. I have a ministry acquaintance, a friend really, whose whose, um, daughter and son-in-law were strong Christians, raised in Christian homes, strong Christians, got married, went to the mission field, called to a very difficult place, spiritually speaking, a difficult region of the world. During their time there, they began to experience some suffering. They had a miscarriage and, and some other things happened. They began to struggle in their faith. They started reading some of the new atheists' writings, the books that are out now, and one day, one day they decided to chuck it all. They quit believing in God. In each of these situations, doubt ended up derailing their faith. When confronted with an unanswerable question or when not understanding what God was doing, they chose to chuck their faith. But That is not our only option when it comes to our doubts. There is another response we can have in the midst of our doubts. Think about what you instinctively do when the power goes out in your home or your apartment and you are suddenly thrust into darkness. you You can't even see an inch in front of our face. What do we instinctively do in that situation? We start reaching for things that are familiar. Oh yeah, okay, there's the wall. There's the dining room table. There's the couch, right? These things help us get our bearings in the midst of darkness. And we need a similar thing, spiritually speaking. When we are suddenly thrust into the darkness of doubt, does God really exist? Does he really care? What about all this evil and suffering? Does he know what he's doing? When we're thrust in the darkness of doubt, what we need are a few core realities that help us get our bearings. We need a few anchors that help us cling to our faith in the midst of our doubts. And so I want to share with you a few of these, what a few of these anchors are for me. Four core realities that over the years have helped ground me in my faith in the midst of the doubts that that I experience. The first anchor for me is the wonder of God's creation. My faith in God is reinforced when I look at the wonder of God's creation, whether it's the stars in heaven or a beautiful sunset or the majesty of the mountains. You know, scientists will talk about how the earth is perfectly suited for life, the perfect distance from the sun and the perfect amount of ocean and just the right atmosphere in terms of oxygen and other elements, the tilt of the axis, the speed of our orbit. Multiple elements are in place allowing life to even exist. It's amazing. The psalmist writes that the heavens declare the glory of God. So creation speaks to me of God's existence, but it's not only the creation around me. My faith is stirred when I look at the complexity of our physical bodies. This may sound silly to you, but it is incredibly significant to me. When, when in a doctor's office or waiting in the exam room, do you ever look at those diagrams on the wall? 
of the, the chart of our muscles or our, our nerves or our nose and sinuses or our brain or our bones. I mean, our bodies reveal this amazing functionality and complexity. Pick any part of our body. It is a work of genius. Our skin with its two million pores that help regulate body temperature through perspiring. And not only that, it keeps out certain substances, but it also allows others in through this highly complex process of absorption. Our circulatory system with 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body and mine, where blood delivers necessary nutrients to every cell. And it gets those ingredients from the air we breathe, i.e. the enter the, the respiratory system, right? And the food that we eat, our digestive system. Any of those systems on its own is incredibly complex. My brother-in-law had throat cancer a few years ago. And in, in the treatment process, his salivary glands stopped working. They weren't able to function because of the chemotherapy he was receiving, which was a huge challenge in eating. Now, we take this for granted, but think of the importance of our salivary glands in our digestive process. But that's, that's just one part of the entire digestive process. I just read an article that described how our nose works as a humidifier so that the 2,500 gallons of air that we take in every day doesn't dry out our lungs. And not only that, the turbinates in our nasal passage help slow down the airflow, giving more time for the air to warm to body temperature so that our lungs don't freak out. Or what about how our blood clots? It is a highly complex process. Without it, we would bleed to death. First cut, we would bleed to death. I mean, each cell in our body, if you go to the level of the cell, each cell in our body is an incredibly complex machine. Uh, a friend of mine is an optometrist. She said that in med school, medical school, she had three semesters of classes focused only on the anatomy of the eye. Three semesters. Our eyes are amazing in terms of the complexity and function. The rods, the cones, the blood vessels, the nerves, the tissue, the retina, which has ten layers. Each eye has a million, opt a million optic nerves that travel to the brain. These are just a few examples. You can pick any aspect of the human body and you see a marvel of complexity. I mean, fingernails. You ever think about your fingernails? How does all this soft tissue create these, these hard fingernails? Our, our nerves, right, to, to, that help us experience pain. Without our nervous system, we would die. Again, it's not just one system. It is multiple, a multiple, highly complex, all these systems working together in our bodies. To me, this screams of design, of a creator. Now, I realize that others may look at this complexity and have all sorts of other theories about it. That's fine. But to me, the most plausible explanation for this amazing complexity is a loving creator. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, we read, For you created my inmost being. You, God, knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. See, David looked at his body and it moved him to give God praise. So when I have doubts about God, when I have questions I can't answer, it helps me to meditate on the wonder of creation, including how incredibly complex my body is, the human body is. That's an anchor for me. A second anchor, a second core reality that helps me hang on to my faith in the midst of difficult questions and doubts is this, the plausibility of God's story of humanity. The plausibility of God's story of humanity. Let me explain what I'm talking about. The story of humanity as presented in the Bible um, uh, it, 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 uh, it squares with, this is the best way to say it, it squares with the, re, re, with the reality around us as we know it. I know of no other worldview that, that can so deftly diagnose what we see happening all around us. See, the story begins with creation, right? Adam and Eve created in the image of God, enjoying the perfection of the Garden of Eden, enjoying an authentic, completely vulnerable relationship with each other, and enjoying the task given to them to tend to creation. So in this wonderful beginning, we already see the dignity of each and every human being. In other words, we see why killing is wrong. And we know it's wrong, <laughs> We all know it's wrong. Why it's wrong, we see it. We see why humans long to do something of significance to make the world a better place. Because they were given a job to do before the fall. And we see why we as humans, why we long for relationships in which we don't have to hide, but we can be real with each other. Why is it that each and every human being feels these things at a deep level, this longing for meaning, this longing for significance, this longing for connection where we don't have to hide? We all long for this. Why? Do we long for this? Are, are we just the, the product of, of chance mutations, or is there a deeper meaning in our existence? The creation account in Genesis answers this question for me in a way that squares with the reality I observe. It answers it in a way that to me is way more plausible than any other explanation out there. People long for value. They long for meaning. They long for acceptance. They long for purpose, for intimacy. And Genesis shows us why that is. We are created in God's image. Now, another, a second part of the story occurs in Genesis 3, right? Even though these, the, the, the initial creation account was all good, something went very wrong. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the curse of sin was unleashed on our planet. Evil came to reside in us as humans. And again, people may poo-poo the idea of sin and oh, the Bible and all that, but I mean, this... Genesis 3 explains how, as humans, we are capable of writing beautiful poetry and are achieving amazing medical advancements, and yet we are also capable of the most horrendous acts of violence and petty acts of self-centeredness. Genesis 3 explains why addictions are so rampant in our society today. I mean, 
Addictions. When you think about it, addictions make no rational sense when you think about it. Why would someone gamble their entire savings away or continue to pop pills or continue to pursue porn knowing it will rob them of their job, their family, their livelihood, their joy? It makes no rational sense. But it makes perfect sense from a biblical perspective. Addiction is a vivid picture of how sin works. Sin is not just this simple choice between good and evil. We have an angel on our right shoulder and a, you know, a little devil on our left. and we, you know, It's just sin, just a little choice we make between good and evil. No, sin is a power that resides within us and influences most everything we do. And an honest look at the state of humanity reveals that something is very broken about us. Something is very wrong, and the Bible offers an explanation as to why that is. And I think it's the most plausible explanation out there. It's an explanation that makes sense. I mean, you look at Greek mythology, yeah, it can offer an explanation, but none of us are buying it. It is too implausible. But the biblical account is, in my mind, extremely plausible. It is extremely plausible. It explains both the goodness of humanity and it explains how we can do such evil things. It explains why we long for freedom and why we freely choose addictions that destroy us. You got any other explanations for why that is? Why we do that? We long for freedom, and yet we willingly put ourselves in, in, and participate in behaviors that will rob us of freedom? The Bible gives us a plausible explanation for that. We are created in God's image, and yet are sinful because of the rebellion that occurred in Genesis 3. So why do I continue to believe in God, even with the questions that I can't answer? It's because the story he offers us in Genesis fits with the reality I see all around me and that I experience in my own life. A third anchor for my faith is the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. There, there has been no other human being that has so significantly impacted the world like Jesus has. And what makes him especially remarkable is that he didn't travel widely. He didn't have a Facebook account or Twitter or, or have military power at his disposal or government to influence. He actually spent only three years in any public ministry, focusing most of his attention on a band of 12 quite ordinary men. And yet his influence today is, is remarkable. Billions of followers making up a worldwide movement, a movement that promotes love and sacrifice and doing good. But it is not just, it's not just the extent of his influence that is so significant in my mind. It, it is the nature of it. When one reads the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, it is hard to not be impressed with his, his incredible miracles, his brilliant responses to his adver adversaries, right? His resolute courage, his sacrificial love. Now, some people may argue 
you know, the disciples made this stuff up. These books were written, you know, they just made this stuff up. But I find that really hard to believe. Who could make up a story like this? Who could do that? And most of the time, when people are trying hard to write an exalted biography of their heroes, right? It is fairly obvious. The gospel accounts don't have any of that feel to them. I mean, often, the disciples look like idiots. Seriously, they look like idiots. What disciple is going to make that up and then, you know, and then get buy-in from the others before it goes public? Before it goes to print, hey, Peter, do you mind if I say this about you here? You know, can I just kind of make this up, make it look like you're... Who would do that? The eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life as provided in the New Testament are, are, offer a plausible, believable, and accurate picture of Jesus. It's plausible. These aren't these myths and legends that are larger than life. It's, it's written. It's real. They offer a plausible, accurate picture of Jesus. Now, I realize there are many supposed new gospels that are being discovered. Just watch the History Channel almost every night, and you get some information about these supposed new gospels and all that, um, with Jesus having a wife and all this stuff. But even a cursory look at these, any of these, the Gospel of Thomas, the God, whatever, look at any of these, it reveals numerous questions about their legitimacy. Unlike the New Testament accounts, all of these new gospels were written centuries after Jesus was on earth. Centuries. The, the gospel accounts contained in the New Testament were readily accepted as legitimate by the early Christians. So even, and even with all this evidence, there, there is one crowning demonstration of Jesus' deity and his power. That's the resurrection, right? The tomb is empty. The arguments that used to, you know, used to say that resurrection didn't happen are, are in my opinion, highly improbable. Had, had the disciples stolen the body, why would they later be willing to die for a lie? And what about Jesus' appearance to hundreds of people as described in 1 Corinthians 15? These words were written by Paul when many of these witnesses were still alive and they could either confirm or deny what Paul was writing. See, what is clear is that the resurrection launched a movement of Jesus' followers that continues today. What else could explain how this ragtag group of frightened disciples before the resurrection within days, became a transformational movement that impacted the world. The, the resurrection, if true, means that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And I'm willing to put my faith in this Jesus, even when I may not understand what God is doing. At various times, or why he seems distant, or why he doesn't answer a certain prayer, or why he's silent in the midst of certain tragedies. I mean, even in the midst of all that, Jesus is truly amazing. He is amazing. There is one more anchor that helps me hold on to my faith when, when facing doubt and difficult questions, and that is my own experiences with God my own experiences with God. As I look back on my journey with Jesus, there are certain moments where his presence was powerfully at work. Some were fairly dramatic. I, I like the time I was struggling with panic attacks and I had gone to see a counselor in another city 
During a free afternoon, I was in my room um, just praying and decided to put on a worship tape. Yes, that would be a cassette tape. If you don't know what that is, I'll show you one later. But, um, but I, I put on this worship tape, and as I listened to the words, I was just kneeling beside the bed, just listening to the words, I began to feel a, a power come upon me. It was a powerful sensation in my entire body. It was like electricity. It was a physical sensation of like electricity. And my heart was suddenly filled with this joy and I began to laugh uncontrollably. And this whole experience lasted several minutes and it was such a profound experience of love and joy. It's almost um, hard to describe in, in words. But I, I, I do know, I only know, that I've, I've never had a, a panic attack since that afternoon. Um, now I'm not, I know anxiety, I, I'm not saying, hey, it's just, there's a quick thing and all that. This is just what happened to me. I understand anxiety, understand fear and all that and, and how difficult it can be to journey through that. So I'm not making any statement about our expectations of what God will do. I'm just saying what happened to me. Um, I, and part of it was because my anxiety, I think, was so rooted in my own um, identity issues of not feeling loved and valued and having to prove myself. And those are things I still wrestle with, but, but for whatever reason, God supernaturally met me um, that afternoon in a very profound way that impacted my life. While that's a fairly dramatic experience, there are other experiences that are less dramatic, but just as powerful. Recently, I was traveling with a friend who, during the trip, we were on an airplane, he, he was kind of moving his hand around, I said, what's going on? He mentioned that he'd been having significant pain in his hand for a number of weeks. He was unable to tie his shoes or work on the computer. It was very frustrating, and he's a pastor friend of mine in, in the Denver area. So when we landed, we were heading uh, at DIA, we were heading to baggage claim, and I asked him, hey, could I pray for that? Could I pray for your healing? And, and, and and he said, yeah. So we stopped right there in the middle of DIA and, and prayed. And it was a very brief prayer, probably one or two minutes, just placed my hand on his hand and prayed for healing. Um, a few days later, he emailed me that his pain left completely after we prayed. His hand is now functioning totally normally. I mean, that is just, that was so cool. Now, I wish... I could see, I would see more frequent answers to healing prayer. I wish that was the case. Um, but that instance, these instances when it does happen, are incredibly encouraging. Reminder to me that God is alive. He's real. Last week, I, I shared in the, in the message about miracles, I shared the, the story of a person in our worship service just a few months ago who had chronic, horrible back pain for four years, and during a worship service a few months ago, here, in this, in this, here at, at 15th Street Campus, God healed him completely. I saw him last week after the service. He was holding his child and, and doing, doing fantastic. Yeah, I think not only of instances of healing, but also of deliverance. There have been a few times um, in my ministry that I have been a part of a prayer experience where demons have manifest themselves in a person that we're praying for. And it is ter it's, it's frightening to see evil in such a tangible way. But what I find amazing, and I'm very grateful for, is how these demons respond to the name and the authority of Jesus. Every time they hate him, and yet they are less powerful than he is. And so to, to see demons who have had influence for years in a person's life now coming out simply because we are praying in the name of Jesus... It is an incredible evidence to me of the reality of Jesus' power. I've seen it. 
I am so thankful as well for the Holy Spirit who lives in me and in every follower of Jesus, and I often feel his presence and his love. Not always, but often, I do. Um, I at times hear his voice in in ways that result in ministry being released in someone's life. I, I have no other explanation for that except that God is real. He is personal. He is loving. I've experienced him and continue to experience him in real ways. Now, I wish... I could say that I always feel his presence, that I always see his, in my, my prayers answered in these dramatic ways, that I always hear his voice, but that's not the case. It's not an always. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul described our current spiritual journey as seeing in a mirror dimly. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. We can see the reflection, but it is not as clear as we would hope. But Paul adds one day, we shall see face to face. We're not there yet, but we will see face to face. And I can't wait for that day to see Jesus face to face. But until then, we hold on to what we know to be true about God. Even when when it seems the lights go out all around us, and we are scrambling for answers. Even when circumstances scream at us that God isn't paying attention, God doesn't exist, even when our heart is wrestling with a question about God where there is no easy answer, even in those situations when we are assailed by doubts, we can hold on to these anchors. The wonder of creation, the plausibility of God's story of humanity, the person of Jesus, and our own experiences with God or other stories we've heard from other people. These things can serve as, really, as memorial markers, right? (laughs) That's what memorial markers do. We put them in the ground. Why? Because we don't want to forget when circumstances kind of think of, well, we ought to, you know, God maybe isn't doing all that he's supposed to and all that. Oh, remember when he did that? And remember when he showed up and did that. That's what memorial markers are for. So these anchors I'm talking about, they, they can serve as memorial markers, reminding us that God is real and he is with us. They don't take away our doubts. They don't take away our doubts. But they enable us to hang on to Jesus in the midst of our doubts. In his, in his excellent book, The Case for Faith, uh, Lee Strobel tells about his interview with Charles Templeton, who was a contemporary of Billy Graham. Many actually feel or felt that that Templeton was more gifted than Billy Graham. They were both speaking, both evangelists. They thought Templeton was actually more gifted. And while both were initially involved in ministry, Templeton had an experience that derailed his faith. He he describes it in in the book. He talks about how he saw Again, a a magazine cover, interestingly enough. He saw the cover of Life magazine, on which was a picture of an anguished woman during a drought in Africa, holding her starving child. And he said, I'm quoting here, he said, I looked at it and thought, is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? And he, he says, that was the climactic moment. It became crystal clear to me that it is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a deity who loves. So after preaching to thousands of people, he decided he could not believe 
That was his response to doubt. He asserted that it was impossible to believe in a loving God who would allow that sort of thing. Now, who, who among us can't relate to the trauma of that question? We felt it. We've seen pictures like that. We have felt that. Can't you just send rain? But does that question require us to abandon our faith? No. What it does is give us a choice. And this is really, really important. We have a choice in the midst of doubts like that. We can either run to God with our doubt and our anger and confusion, or like Templeton, we can choose to run away from God. It's what Philip Yancey describes as the difference between being disappointed with God or being disappointed at God. To be disappointed with God is to continue to run to him with our questions and our doubts and our pain. To be disappointed at him is to place ourselves in the position of judge and jury. And we decide that he is not worthy of our worship. I've recently had two conversations with two teenagers who lost their grandmother and were struggling in their faith in the aftermath of this death. How could God take her away? And, and I told them both, separate conversations, separate families, but I told them both, hey, you know what? It is okay to be mad at God right now. It is okay to have doubts and to wonder what he's doing, but the key is what you do with that. Will you run away from God with those things? Or will you run to him? He's big enough to handle your anger and your disappointment and your questions. He's big enough. See, that, that's the critical question for us in times of doubt. Will we run to God with our doubts or will we run away from him? See, for me, the, the, these four anchors that I mentioned earlier help me choose to continue to run to him even when I don't understand what he's doing. He promises us his presence, even in the midst of our doubts. Now, interestingly, as Lee Strobel was concluding his interview with the aging Charles Timbleton, I think he was in his 80s by this time when he was interviewed, Strobel asked him about Jesus. What, what do you think of Jesus? And Templeton said slowly, Jesus is the most important human being who ever existed. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack and tears flooded his eyes, I miss him. I miss him. See, for Templeton, his doubts moved him, convinced him that his only option was to run away from God. And yet in his heart, he still longed for that relationship. Let's not make the same decision with our doubts. Let's choose to run to God with our doubts, holding on to our anchors of faith and yet also realizing we will, we will have lots of unanswered questions on our way to heaven. That's okay, we will. God is still God and we can still trust him until then. Let's pray. 
I want to actually invite our campus pastors at each of our campuses to come forward as, as we lead our congregations in, in prayer. So Holy Spirit, you know each heart here. You know the doubts that we maybe secretly wrestle with. Maybe we're too ashamed to admit it to someone else. Thank you for helping us see that it's normal to have doubt. The critical issue is what we do with our doubts. Lord, for some of us here, maybe we have chosen to kind of run away from you. Our hearts are just becoming hardened and we just have run away from you because of our pain or our doubt or our questions. And if that's the case, I want to pray that you would draw us back through the power of your love. And for all of us here, Lord, there would be anchors in our soul that we would cling to when the lights go out and we're filled with doubt and despair and questions and confusion. When the lights go out, there would be anchors and we'd say, oh yeah, I remember. (laughs) The person of Jesus. I remember the plausibility of the story of, of creation. I remember these things the wonder of creation. I remember my own experiences with God. Even though I'm not experiencing now, I remember these things and I cling to these anchors. So I want to pray for that, for each one of us, that you would drive these anchors deeper into our soul, these memorial markers, so that even when we're having doubts, we would have reason to cling to you and to continue believing in you and running to you with our doubts. Thanks for being a God who is big enough to handle that. So we run to you with our questions. We run to you with our doubts, our confusion. We run to you, God, to you. You know, with your head still bowed or whatever, there may be some of you here. I, I want to I give an invitation here. There, there may be some of you, and you have thought that the only way you'll ever say yes to Jesus is if all your questions are answered. In other words, you felt like in order to be a Christian, you can't have any doubts. And that's just not true. You don't have to have all your questions figured out about hell and about suffering and all these. You you don't have to have all that figured out for you to say yes to Jesus. Even the disciples, in the book of Matthew, he's he's right there before them and some still doubted. (laughs) It's okay. You can say yes to what you know to be true about Jesus. Even with all your questions, you can step across a line of faith and say, Jesus, I need you, and I want you in my life. I want you to forgive my sin. I want you to change me. And there may be some of you here, and this has been your hang-up. Because you're, you're reading these books, you look at these things, you just think, there's just no way I can ever become a Christian because I don't understand this, I don't understand that, and... 
You know what? You don't have to understand. You probably won't. None of us will until we get to heaven. But you can say yes to this Jesus who is wooing you and who loves you and who died on a cross for you. So if that's you tonight, I want to lead you in a prayer where you say yes to Jesus. Even with your doubts, you come to Jesus and receive the life that he has for you. So if that's the desire of your heart, would you pray with me in the silence of your heart? Dear God, I admit my need. I admit my doubts. I admit my fears and confusion, all that stuff. But I admit most of all that I need a savior. I need your, my sins to be forgiven. I need your love in my life and the purpose and meaning that you give. And so I, I am choosing right now to believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. He died in my place. He took my sin upon himself when he died on the cross so that my sins for, could be forgiven. I am choosing to place my trust in you, Jesus. I bring to you all of my fears, all my sins, all my doubts, my unanswered questions. I just bring them to you. And I say yes to you. I ask you to come into my life right now, forever. I open my heart to the presence of your spirit and I pray that you would change me from the inside out. You would let me know your love personally and the joy of your forgiveness and the joy of meaning of having a purpose and your plan for me. I embrace all of that. So Father, I want to pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Thank you they're on this journey now to grow in you. And I thank you that, that, that even with their doubts, they can still run to you. And they can experience you. Thank you for that, Lord. Thanks for being such an awesome Savior. An incredible person. with so, so, so much wisdom and power, and yet you gave your life for us on the cross, for all of us here. We're so thankful, Jesus, for who you are. You know, tonight we have the opportunity in just a moment to embrace in a tangible way the fullness of the work of Christ, this anchor in our souls by partaking of the Lord's Supper. And the way this is going to work, ushers, if you want to head down the aisle, but please just wait up here. Don't distribute the elements yet, but just come on up so you'll be ready. Before you distribute, I want to just explain what we're going to do. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together, and uh, the, the tray is going to come by. If, if you're a believer in Jesus, even if you just prayed with me to receive Christ, we invite you to partake. So in a moment, when the trays are going to be passed, um, what you're going to do is um, it'll come by and just take, there'll be two cups stacked on top of each other. Just take a stack. So take those two cups. One of them has the bread, one has the juice. Take that, hold on to it, pass it to the next person, hang on to that. Then when everyone is served, I'm going to come back up here and I'm going to lead us in partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And I want to just encourage you as the trays are passed that... Um, rather than letting our minds wander about this or that, to really focus on the person of Jesus and the life 
he lived, in the life he lives in us, the life he gave for us. Um, and that that anchor, the incredible wonder of who he is, just focus on that, focus your heart on him. And then in just a moment, I'll come back up and lead us together. So ushers, thank you. If you would distribute the elements now, that would be great. Thank you.